Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Thanks so much for listening and making your commitment to learning. I hope everybody is doing well. I'm your host. I am Jordan Porter, joined by the wonderful Yvonne Brandenburg. Hey, girl. Hey. Hi. <laughs> How goes it? Not too bad. It um, has been really raining at my house the last couple of days, like downpoury rain. I was like, okay, it's probably more rain than I've gotten in like two years. All right, cool. That's that's kind of crazy. Yeah. It has not really been raining here, which is unusual for us, but there is like a hurricane off the coast. Like I think it's by Puerto Rico right now. Oh um, yeah, I saw that. Oh, so, so I'm sure we'll probably get some like residual, like it's not supposed to come up the coast, but we always get like the, the blow away. Yeah. Rain stuff. Yeah. I think so. honestly, I think that's part of what we have right now. Um, that's what I, someone said yeah uh, i think there's friends. like a hurricane southern california slash mexico i think yeah so, so we're getting I don't know. residual because it's at, it's weird because it hasn't been cold mm-hmm. like it's still been in like the 60s and 70s which to me for rain is not cold like for me rain gets cold like our normal rain is like in the 50s <laughs> so like <laughs> So, you know, it's something been, it's where been, I wear like shorts is, is not a big deal. It's been really nice here. We get the like folly winters, uh, folly winters, folly mornings still. Mm. Um, I bought a bunch of fall candles and I'm supposed to go shopping with my friend later today to buy more fall candles. Oh. Um, and I've been super productive the last couple days and like my ac is finally fixed upstairs it just took two and a half months <laughs> it's fine we're out of summer but that's okay i know i know <laughs> and like i had my septic tank cleaned out and like it's so funny because the guy came to and he was like are you having any problems i was like no everything's running fine i was just you know like i just looked it up and saw that you're supposed to do it every couple years and the previous owners of the house told us that like we didn't need to do anything but like put some yeasty stuff in the toilets once a month or whatever mm. and um I was like, so when I did research, I was like, oh, that doesn't sound like you're supposed to have it cleaned every like four to six years or something like that. Huh. And they had lived here for eight years and I've lived here for a year. So I was like, well, that's nine years unaccounted for. Yeah. So like I called some guy yesterday. This is why I love the country. Cause like I called some guy yesterday <laughs> and no joke. He showed up two hours later. Oh, and, like <laughs> I was just, I was just calling for an estimate and he showed up two hours later, prepared to do it too. Nice as can be country boy. Like, and we I couldn't get him into the backyard because the boat was in the way and I was like I'm really sorry I was like I wasn't anticipating you like I thought you were just gonna come like look at it and tell me he's like no 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 it probably needs cleaned and I was like okay and so then I moved the boat yesterday he came back this morning and like uh he like dug it up and it was like leaking and I was like oh my god he's like are you really not having any problems I was like no I was like everything like the water runs fine he's like does the water drain fine I was like yeah everything like is fine and he's like, that's so crazy. He's like, and so long story short, he cleans everything out. And he's like, I don't know how you weren't having any problems. He's like, but I imagine that within the next two to four weeks, you would have had an emergency. Like everything would have backed up just because it was so full. Oh, wow. 
he's like, there's no way this has been done in the last 10 years. And I was like, well, according to my calculations, I was like, I don't think it has been. Yeah. But, um, he was so freaking nice and like took care of it. And like, he was only here like an hour too. Like it was, it was great. I'm, well, mm. <laughs> I was gonna say, I don't deal with septic tanks and I'm so happy, but um, seeing as how, I did have an emergency when we first started recording this ep- uh, podcast. Yeah. That took me out of my house for a couple of months. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure um, saying that I don't have a septic tank is okay. <laughs> I know. Everybody's Ugh. like, oh, I'm so happy I don't have to deal with that. I was like, to be fair, I was like, apparently I don't have to deal with it. But every once, like once every 10 years, even though I'm going to do it more frequently than that, obviously. But I'm just yeah. like. I was literally just sitting on my couch yesterday and I was like, I wonder what we're supposed to do with septic tanks. And then I called and like, <laughs> that's funny. You had a spidey sense. I did. I did, I guess. And like, it really paid off and you're like, thank God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so. I'm sure everybody's so excited about all the adulting talk. <laughs> I know. I, I called my parents too. And they're like, isn't being a homeowner great? I was like, I was like, actually, I feel really good about like getting my house like taken care of before anything has a problem and seriously other than the ac that sucks that that broke for so long but yeah it could have been worse yeah yeah i mean at least you have another one in the house like it's not like your only ac that would be that would be horrible yeah that would have been miserable if it was the entire like downstairs unit i mean the downstairs unit had already broken though and so we were just cold in the winter Mm. but oh well anyway speaking Mm. of ac we're talking about heat stroke today (laughs) oh god i know we got through the summer so (laughs) yeah i might as well give all the information on how to manage heat stroke now that summer's over (laughs) yeah it's fine (laughs) we are doing our monthly ce next month on october 15th saturday uh it's it is through the membership if you're part of the membership then it is free if you are not part of the membership though um you can sign up for the newsletter and get the information on how to sign up we do a monthly ce once a month just a little webinar uh it's ten dollars if you're not a member it's free if you are a member of internal medicine for vet techs and next month we're talking continuous glucose monitors and how to use them in your practice and that's like i said saturday october 15th 2022 if you're listening to this in the future right yeah (laughs) yeah and I actually um I think I put a new link on our website let me make sure because I think if you go into internal medicine for vettechs.com yeah so I did put a new link on our website so if you go into internal medicine for vettechs.com you can definitely sign up for the newsletter there and then if you look at the top it says earn CE with us um, and if you click on the earn CE with us, I do have a link for our Zoom hub because um, that's where you would go to sign up for any of the sessions. So you can either do through the newsletter um, or you can sign up through our Zoom hub um, and all of our upcoming CEs that we already have posted are going to be listed there. So um, it's a nice, nice, quick way to find the ce we have a couple ways to get there so good um so anyway we're talking heat stroke this week uh a lot of us i'm sure do know what heat stroke is it's something that we see mostly in in emergency but we can see it in general practice of course too especially if there's not an emergency clinic near you 
I saw it in internal medicine just due to some of the after effects Mm. of the heat stroke. Mm -hmm. Um, So what heat stroke is, is basically it's, it's hyperthermia, right? Like, so it's a high elevated body temperature. And uh, I learned a lot of stuff this week about um, just like the different mechanisms is like, it's not just standard heat stroke, right? Like it's it's not just like weather induced. Correct. So hyperthermia though can be pyrogenic or non-pyrogenic and non-pyrogenic though can result in from exposure to high temperatures outside essentially or non-exertional heat stroke um and well so there's like there's two categories of heat stroke right so there's pyrogenic and non-pyrogenic and then from there there's three different categories of heat stroke there's non-exertional um or exertional as well as there's not really a name for it It, it's just heat stroke due to secondary causes such as like uncontrolled seizures or or tremors Mm, so those those pets can so it's like primary secondary yes (laughs) internal versus external (laughs) yeah and then like malignant hyperthermia is like its own oh yeah that's a whole thing yeah, that's that's not what we're talking about today at all. Yeah. Um. So, like I said, so the classic what we think of of heat stroke is exertion or I mean non-exertional heat stroke where an animal is exposed to like high temperatures outside in the environment or high humidity. Um, and then depending on what book you read hyperthermia <laughs> is technically a temperature a body temperature over 103 degrees fahrenheit uh critical the critical temperatures where multiple organ failure can incur is anything around 107 to 109 degrees fahrenheit for dogs and cats yeah for dogs and cats for people, people. i'm sure it's <laughs> we don't talk about people <laughs> just making sure somebody's not like oh god People temperatures and animal temperatures are different in case when you have a fever, you're like, oh no, I'm only 101. That's a fever for people. <laughs> do you ever do that? You apply like animal temperatures to your own temperature? Yeah. Like when I first had kids and like I had been a vet tech for a couple years and then like <laughs> they got their first fever of like 101 or something like that. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, we're good. And then I like, it took me, I think I like, it took me a solid 10 minutes to be like, oh, that's yeah. not. That's kids. <laughs> That's awesome. One time, one time Bailey had a fever of 105 and we Oof. ended up at the ER. Um, and no joke. This is why human medicine is funky. Cause like we called the doctor and we're like, her fever is spiking. And like at the time I had called the doctor is 103, 104. And they're like, you need to go to the ER if it goes above 105. I was like, okay, no problem. And like, I had given her Motrin and stuff. And so then it goes over like to one Oh, I think it was one Oh five, three or something like that. So we went to the ER mm-hmm. and, um, she had a really bad ear infection, which is crazy to me, but they didn't do anything. They just gave her more Motrin. And I was like, aren't you guys supposed to give her like IV fluids or something to cool her down? But like they didn't. And they just sent us home. They literally gave her Motrin. Like we were there for 30 minutes. They gave her Motrin and sent us home. And I was like, not even watching her for a little bit for seizures or anything. So I was not happy. That seems really weird. Yeah, I was not happy. Huh. Luckily, that was a one-time incident. And obviously, Bailey did fine. Like we got her cooled down like i got in the bathtub and stuff with her and like it was a lukewarm bath we're gonna discuss this a little bit further but yeah we got into like a lukewarm bath and like 
slowly brought her temperature down like she felt fine it was it was amazing too because she felt mostly normal she was just like a little bit more she was a baby at the time so she was a little bit more clingy than normal but like she wasn't like vomiting everywhere or like there were very vague signs it was crazy yeah um anyway back to animals (laughs) (laughs) uh so again Organ failure and death can occur if temperatures rise to 107 to 109 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that this link gave me the 41.2 degrees Celsius to 42.7 degrees Celsius. Oh, for, uh, for, our, for our international friends. Nice. I'm sorry, international friends. So that's the only information I have on Celsius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so kind of going back to the categories, when we have pyrogenic hyperthermia, it can be induced by an increase in the set point response to disease. So when we kind of talk, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but we know that the (laughs) the hypothalamus controls body temperature regulation within the body. Mm -hmm. And so in a normal body, there's a certain set point of like what is normal. So again, in dogs, we, in cats, we're talking mostly dogs because dogs typically get heat stroke and not cats. Um, But the set point means that like where their body is normally at. So a a dog can be, their set point could be 101.7. Another dog could be 100.3. And Mm -hmm. it so it can vary, but they do have a set point just like humans do. Which is why we want to make sure we take temperatures every time. So we know what their set point is. Yep, exactly. So with pyrogenic hyperthermia though, this set point gets changed in response to disease. Mm. Um, so when it comes to treating hyperthermia, differentiating between pyrogenic and non-pyrogenic is actually pretty important because it can change the way that we treat the disease process. Interesting. Um, and so if a dog develops pyrogenic hyperthermia, then the underlying cause will guide the treatment versus a non-pyrogenic, then we treat the hyperthermia versus the underlying cause. Mm, yeah that makes sense okay Um, mm -hmm. so it's funny though so the the studies on pyrogenic hyperthermia are mostly in humans uh Mm. so active cooling of a patient which we commonly think of when we think of a heat stroke patient uh but when we actively cool pyrogenic case we can actually cause metabolic stress and it can cause physical discomfort uh so in a human study there's... So, like, if they have, like, a fever because of a mm-hmm. disease process, mm-hmm. then and that's to... more stressing. to Well, and, and I mean, that makes sense because there's a reason the fever is happening, right? The well, fever, in theory, is supposed to help combat the bugs. Yeah. So, when we, mm-hmm. try, to, when we try to tell the body that the temperature is wrong, but the body is saying that the temperature is where it's supposed to be, right? Mm. It causes a metabolic stress to the body because it's like, no, no, no. Like, my temperature needs to be here because the hypothalamus got switched. Right. right. Uh-huh. Um, and so, it can actually cause, like, literal pain to a patient, <laughs> like, when you try to cool them down. Um, and so, there was a study about injecting some sort of drug in humans that would cause pyrogenic hyperthermia and so then the patients were actively cooled and what happened was it resulted in an increase in oxygen consumption and then patients reported physical discomfort uh 
And so they found when they exposed patients to forced air warming, so like warming or cooling down the body, but with like warm air instead of cool air, those patients Mm. were most comfortable. Interesting. I mean, Mm. it makes sense. Like I think of like when I have a fever, right? Like your skin gets super sensitive, like, you know, that sensation, like, you just touch your skin and you're like, ow, that hurts. So mm-hmm. I can imagine like if you're trying to like actively cool, like that's more like that's that's more sensitive anyways. And so mm-hmm. I can imagine that wouldn't feel great. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that the oxygen consumption goes up too. I mean, that that makes sense though, because that's like your metabolism, right? Mm-hmm. Like all your cells are increasing. So you're gonna have more oxygen consumption. So it makes sense, honestly. Like right? interesting. But when we think of classic heat stroke, we're really thinking of non-pyrogenic hyperthermia. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not due to a change in the hypothalamic thermoregulatory system or like the set point of the body. So that does allow us to perform active cooling because the set point is still normal. It's still that 101.3 or whatever the normal is for that dog. Mm -hmm. Um, So that way we can actually perform active cooling without having those consequences of a patient being uncomfortable you know it's it's interesting like I think of that set point thing so because I've definitely had heat exhaustion slash heat stroke before so um, I know the difference uh but like I think about when I have a fever right like I'm cold even though mm-hmm. my temperature's up and I'm just like Ugh, versus if I am having heat exhaustion or stuff like that like I feel hot yeah. I'm like, this doesn't feel good. And so I want to cool off. So it kind of yeah. makes sense that it'd probably be similar in dogs with heat stroke. Like they're just like, it's too hot. It really does. Cause yeah. Like when you have a fever because you're sick and your body is trying to battle something like you're typically under covers, like shivering. Right. And like, Cause you're like, you it's know? not 101. <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm. Versus like when you've been working out in the yard and you're tired and you come inside and take a cold shower. Like it, yeah. it, it is very, very different. Uh, so it, it does make sense, but like, I think when we think of heat stroke, like we do have like a one track, like we don't think about it. Right. Like when I'm mm. sick, I don't think about the times that I'm out in the yard and I'm like, my body right. is <laughs> definitely hot. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but it is funny. It, it's interesting. It's not funny. So a body temperature elevation though, of something as minimal as 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit can actually activate heat receptors that are found like within the periphery of the body. And this will trigger the thermoregulatory center. And then what happens is then the body, of course, is re- trying to respond to this elevation of the 1.8 degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what will happen is there's it'll induce constriction of renal and splenic vessels. It'll induce tachycardia and cutaneous vasodilation. And then makes sense because of these things, it'll result in increased blood flow to the skin where it can be cooled so basically it's, it's like the body is like get the hot stuff to the surface yep to cool Let's down cool it off yeah huh. yeah the so then amazingly smart just saying it really is it really is <laughs> and then the hypothalamus will then also stimulate tachypnea and panting to assist in cooling yeah okay yeah so when we kind of break it down when we do develop when we I'm going to say we like I'm a dog. I'm just going to pretend <laughs> to be a dog during this episode. I mean, you're a dog. I'm a cat. It's fine. It's very much true. 
So when heat stroke occurs, I'm going to kind of break it down per body system. We had some really great resources, which I'll share obviously in the show notes like we always do, but there are some really great tables and stuff like that. So I'm going to break it down per body system. So when heat stroke occurs, we can have effects to almost every body system. Right. We're going to start with the central nervous system. And it's going to get a little bit like iffy when we discuss like what happens in the body. Uh, because so talking central nervous system, what happens is cytotoxicity susceptibility is increased. And when we have that cytotoxicity, it can result in injury and death of the neurons. And so we can develop cerebral edema, hemorrhage, and necrosis. That sounds horrible. It gets like worse. Nerve cell death. Oh, nerve cell death. Every cell death. <sighs> Yeah. So then leading into the coagulation system, right? We're going to have that's the one we think of a lot of. Yeah. Because that's what we can outwardly see, right? right? Like yeah. we, we can see that a patient's bleeding. And so they bleed because endothelial damage, which again occurs due to cytotoxicity, and it releases thromboplastin and factor 12, activating the coagulation cascade. Mm. And then DIC can occur as we all know and that's kind of yeah. like i said that's kind of like the classic sign of like oh crap heat stroke yeah. um and then we move on to the cardiovascular system Ooh. so initially cardiac output and peripheral vasodilation like we already talked about where we have that tachycardia and vasodilation to try to bring blood to the the skin level and then we'll have central vasoconstriction because again we want the blood to go outward not inward and then Basically, when when those steps fail to cool down the body, venous blood pools, and then central vasodilation leads to decreased circulating blood volume again because the organs mm. don't have the blood volume because we're trying the body's trying to push blood to the skin layer. Um, so that decreases circulating blood volume, which then can lead us to hypotension and shock. And so mm. when blood is unable to adequately circulate it then results <laughs> in all the bad things electrolyte derangements um of course we can have acidosis we can have microthrombi because again our coagulation we're, system's we're a little funky in funky places all yep. sorts of bad so we can have microclots which <sighs> then we can have ventricular arrhythmias that can occur due to the ischemia of myocardium and exacerbate perfusion abnormalities Right, because we're we have central vasoconstriction, so we're yep. decreasing blood flow to the heart and the organs. Decreases like oxygen consumption for the heart muscles, and they're trying to beat faster <laughs> because they're trying to pump the. It's all sorts of bad guys. <laughs> it really is. It's like while the Ugh. heart is trying to do what's right for the body, when the body can't correct quickly enough, yeah then it continues to try to correct but then we lose that circulation to the organs in the heart and so then it just results in damage to the the cells and then mm. when we talk about the the pulmonary system we can have injury directly to the pulmonary vascular endothelial cells and so then that will lead to again pulmonary edema and pulmonary vascular resistance and so we what we'll see outwardly is what we consider acute respiratory distress sy syndrome Ugh so all sorts of bad because yeah. again too because blood's not circulating well we don't have oxygenation well right. um, 
and increased permeability like that means if you do get the blood circulating there like you're gonna have decreased um transfer of mm -hmm. co2 and oxygen and all that stuff that normally happens <laughs> in the lungs and so you're gonna get decreased oxygen into the body which then causes further damage right because now we have hypoxemia going on so it's just yeah we like homeostasis this is homeostasis gone horribly wrong like this is everything's like out the window forget it and it's <laughs> it it's crazy to think because like when we think of heat stroke right like we do think of dic and so we're like oh man the you know the coagulation system's funky but it's actually like resulting in everything being funky because then yeah. it leads us to the GI tract, right? Mm. And because of cytotoxicity and because of hypotension and hypovolemia and because of microthrombi <laughs> that can decrease perfusion and ischemia, we're really compromising the integrity of the GI tract. So, <laughs> it, I mean, this is like you've got damage and there's more damage that's happening. Mm -hmm. And then the GI, like, the cells increase their permeability, right? And so things yep. are leaking out the guts even more. Mm -hmm. So these are those guys that are getting horrible, like diarrhea on top of it, right? We've yep. seen it, those heat strokes that start having diarrhea. But then the problem is you got increased permeability. And just like any of the other GI episodes we've talked about, that means stuff can go the other way too. So you got yep. like GI that's bacteria that's going uh, out of the gi tract like we don't want it to do because right. of that increased permeability yeah it's, it's it's really it's fine we'll just throw some bacteria into your system too it just gets septic it's fine yep details here it's fine and, oh, then lastly, and our poor kidneys, kidneys. <laughs> i know i know and the kidneys <laughs> mind you all of this is happening almost simultaneously. I know. Like, right? <laughs> I'm like, all of these systems are getting hit hard at the same yep. time. So the kidneys can <sighs> actually get hit directly related to the heat. So thermal injury to the kidneys. Mm -hmm. And then what can happen too is there's protein denaturation. And uh, there were, there was, there is information on like what occurs with protein denaturation, like what happens, but I didn't get into it because it, eventually like the more and more I read the more and more it went over my head and I was like okay <laughs> like the proteins break down and it's really really bad yeah um and it can lead to tubular necrosis within the kidneys uh Ugh. and then of course we have indirect injury as well because of the vasoconstriction and, and stuff and dehydration right like dehydration yeah. is like low on the list of the all the problems but well because we've also decreased blood flow and blood pressure and so that means that the kidneys aren't going to be because, you know, for fluids to go out, there needs to be the blood flow to the kidneys. If that's not mm -hmm. happening, then, yeah. Mm, so it's bad. a lot of, it's a lot of damage. Yeah. Because it's like the liver takes a hit, obviously, because if the liver didn't take a hit, then the coagulation system wouldn't take a hit. Right. The spleen, the spleen just has to work hard to like, because it's going to get that response of like poor oxygenation. I was going to say, and all those broken down cells. Yeah, so it's probably trying to clean things up. And then yeah. you've got myoglobinuria, right? Because of all the stuff that the spleen's trying to clean up, all the broken cells. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's really, there's no real organ system that's safe when it comes to heat stroke. <laughs> Seriously. Because the respiratory tract's not safe. GI tract is just completely obliterated. Uh, the cardiovascular maybe, maybe the skin? System. Yeah, I guess unless you have, like, actual thermal burns. Like, what if you had a heat stroke with thermal burns on the paws? Oh. Oh, that's horrible. I bet that's occurred. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, this, but the skin would be alright, despite all the bruising and stuff that we would likely cause trying to... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, uh. Oh, yeah. no. Um, so, of course, when we think about heat stroke, we think about dogs, right? Cats are at risk, but they're less at risk. They're not outside as much. And then we have increased risk factors when it comes to developing heat stroke. Of course, like nobody's <laughs> <The number> gonna, one. <laughs> nobody's gonna not consider a brachycephalic breed on this list of increased risk factors, right? right? Like it, it's one of those things. I think the first heat stroke I really saw was like we were doing a vaccine clinic and someone had their bulldog in the southern heat. Oh man! And like it developed heat stroke while waiting for vaccines, um, which we were telling people to wait in their cars with the AC on and stuff like that, but you know people don't always listen um yeah. i well i've even seen it and this is like especially if you work in like a place that has like surgery practice right you've got those brachycephalics that are gonna have surgery or maybe they're gonna have brachycephalic surgery and they wake up just like crazy i think of like the frenchies more than the bulldogs bulldogs tend to be more chill post-op mm-hmm. but then they just work themselves up right and they're mm-hmm. just like freaking out and you have to give them sedation otherwise they're going to cause themselves a heat stroke like mm-hmm. this is an exertional heat stroke yeah with some of these brachycephalic dogs because they're crazy they don't realize that they need to not be doing that <laughs> yeah absolutely and then other risk factors would include uh our patients that have cardiac disease of course because yeah. their heart is already working harder to try to like compensate and try to be as normal as possible right. we have our our larpar dogs so our labs of course yeah. that are still trying to be labs as much as they really can <laughs> while not being able to breathe right. and so like if they're not able to breathe properly right they can't the first mechanism for the body to try to cool itself off is to try to like breathe and, and mm-hmm. breathe out that the hotness <laughs> breathe out the hotness uh our obese patients and then our tracheal collapse patients as well yeah. So well, any and of our dogs really too. Like, I mean, that I was gonna say that 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 panting and that's the only place that they can really like have um, cool off. Yeah, and I mean, with dogs, like that's how they that's how they cool off. They they use that evaporation to help get the 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 heat out, and their mouth really is the only way they can do that. Like, they don't sweat from their armpits. Well, they sweat a little bit from their paw pads, but not enough that it really helps um so any kind of respiratory compromised animal is gonna have a rougher time regulating their body temperature yeah exactly and then history taking on these guys tends to be pretty easy because a lot of (laughs) right (laughs) a lot of clients know that like their pets were either recently exercising outside or they were confined outside it a lot of the resources yeah or in a car like there's usual like typical like visualization of the (laughs) distress occurring while outside Mm -hmm. um it says like without access to water or shade but like even with water and shade they can still develop heat stroke yeah depending on how hot it is 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. So some of the most common clinical signs though that people will present with are is tachypnea, so increased respiratory rate, collapse, shock, of course, inappropriate mentation, where pets are just acting neurologic. <laughs> I don't Ooh, know how to best yeah, say they're that. out of it. Yeah. Uh, some pets might even appear to the hospital with signs of coagulopathy. Oof. And then of course, like once we get them and we assess them, we can find things like tachycardia. Um and pulses are crap. Right. And we can't feel pulses, right? We we know why we can't feel pulses now because <laughs> the blood is coming it's away. Vasodilation. From the- yes, exactly. <laughs> A little so, pooling of some blood. It's fine. <laughs> those big vessels don't have the blood that the blood supply that they should normally have. So we're not going to feel those pulses. They might be weak and thready. Uh, pets can have ataxia and seizures. Um, and then, like I said, like we kind of already talked about damage to the GI tract can occur pretty quickly. And so we can yeah. see patients come in just leaking diarrhea. And often this diarrhea is bloody and it tends to come from yeah. the lower, the lower GI tract. It could be black if it's coming from the upper GI tract, like we frequently talk about. Uh, so, or it could be both. It could be mixed, which is a bummer. Yay. Yeah. And then, uh, sometimes, which is, I've seen this before. Patients can actually present normal, normothermic or hypothermic just due to the cooling efforts prior to the, the clients bringing them into the hospital. Um, especially if there's like a prolonged travel time, they can cool down in the car if they have the AC blasting. Um, or it can be secondary to shock. So once shock sets in, they can actually become normothermic. Um, even though. Yeah. Cause I mean, the patient's not stressed and fighting it as much too. So it's mm-hmm. like. Well, and once, once the body reaches a certain point, it kind of goes into shutdown mode, right? Like, yeah. so we can become, so that's too, why we have to be very cautious on our cooling techniques as well, because we can actually cool too fast and cause the body to shock. Yes. <laughs> that that has been one thing that has changed dramatically since um when I first started in oh, med compared yeah. to like now. Like we know better. <laughs> Absolutely. So differential yeah. diagnosis list. I'll throw toxins on the list because that can occur like if a pet has been outside and like it mm. now seems to appear with a coagulopathy, uh, mm. along with diarrhea and stuff like that, or vomiting. Um, so toxin can be a possibility, especially like if it's rat bait or those, we, you know, there are those patients that live outside and people don't see what's happening and they've lived outside forever. But for some reason today was just a worse day when it comes to the heat kind mm-hmm. of thing. So it can vary. We can't have a differential diagnosis list, but a lot of times people generally know what's occurred when, when they come in. Yeah. That being said, I've never actually worked in emergency. So I would maybe we'll make that the question of the week of like, what, (laughs) what theories do clients have on what's going on with their heat stroke dog? Yeah. I mean, I I wonder if there's like, if there's sneaky heat stroke patients, you know, that we don't realize are heat stroke patients. Oh, there has to be, especially those patients that come in normothermic. Yeah, for sure. Like they have all the signs, but they're normothermic. Yeah. Then people probably assume toxin hmm yeah interesting so typically for these guys when it comes to diagnostics that we're going to run 
obviously physical exam and placing an IV catheter tends to be mm -hmm. first before we go ahead and draw blood or we're getting blood off the catheter that we're placing. That's usually what's happening. Um, but we'll recommend performing a urinalysis and of course our, our basics, right? So we're going to do biochemistries. We're going to do electrolytes. Blood glucose should definitely be on there because we can see hypoglycemia and we'll kind of talk about it. Lactate's on there too. I can't say I've ever run a lactate on a heat stroke dog, but again, I never worked emergency. So I'm sure that, you know, is mm -hmm. a thing. We're going to do a CBC and then of course a coagulation panel. So uh, we want to run like a PT or prothrombin time or an activated partial thromboplastin or an APTT. And then when we kind of break it down, what we can see on our, our blood panels too. So for our biochemistry panel, we can see an ALT increase. Do uh, Remember, <laughs> all the organs are affected, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to see an ALT, an ALKFOS, and an uh, GGT increase. And then, um, again, creatinine, creatinine case <sighs> are going to be increased we're going to see hypoglycemia, it, not always, but we can, because again, the body's experiencing shock, right? Lactate, mm. if, if you do run that can be increased. And then um, I would explain why all of these are increased, but we, we've kind of already touched on, yeah. <laughs> on the why. Yeah. When it comes to our CBC, it is recommended to do a differential to just FYI. Yeah. We can see thrombocytopenia. Again, we can see thrombocytopenia secondary to consumption, right? We know that things are going to start bleeding. They're forming microclots everywhere. And then, which the microclots then lead to DIC. So right. again, thrombo thrombocytopenia is typically observed. We can see an increased PCV, so packed cell volume, because of dehydration. We can see an increase in hemoglobin concentration and we can see an increase in nucleated red blood cells as well. Because again, the bone marrow and the spleen are like, ah, I got to fix this and like try to yeah. pump out more red blood cells mm. as well. And then of course on our, our clotting panel, we're going to see an increase in our PT and APTT as well due to those prolonged clotting times. And so our body, the body is not able to clot properly. Um <clears throat> So basically so, lots of uh, elevated and bad things. Lots of red if you have a, <laughs> a machine right. in color. Oh my God. It's usually the red. The, ah. <laughs> it's really like heat strokes really are really scary. And like it, like I can only imagine. It's hard because it's like the body it feels so much. And it's like trying to combat it is like. You know, you're hitting it from all fronts and how do you, well, and you want to deal with that? Like realistically, like when it comes to just like logically, you want to try to fix it as quickly as possible. Right. But like, mm -hmm. that's not the way you're supposed to do it. Like, which is mm -hmm. like, I agree with you. When I learned in tech school, it was cool as fast as possible. And now it's just not. Yeah. They, they learned. Mm -hmm. So the body itself has ways to cool itself. Uh, like Yvonne kind of already touched on. Um, so what the body is going to try to do is there's evaporation. So this can occur through panting, um, and that can get rid of heat just due to evaporating the water on the surface of the tongue. And then, um, I was going to say, when it's hot outside, it's going to be harder to do this. <laughs> yeah. And then can, well, it can occur 
too rapidly, right? So like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then conduction can occur too. So this occurs when, this is like back to like sixth grade science, I swear. <laughs> like I was like, wait, when I, what? Ah! <laughs> when I learned about conduction of heat, so it's when you touch something it, like if you hold an ice cube in your hand, right? Oh, like, yeah, yeah. and the okay. ice cube makes your hand cold, but it's actually conduction works only in one direction, right? So, like, cool doesn't go to the body; it's just the heat comes off of the body, right? Uh, which was fun to try to explain to my now sixth grade daughter too. But like, she's learning about all that stuff too. So, like, <laughs> if you touch something hot the heat's going to transfer to your hand and make something hot. But if you touch something cold, the heat from your hand is going to transfer to whatever's cold Yep. and make you cool, cooler. So conduction. Um, and then convection is where the movement of air over the body disperses heat. So it, cooling like from a fan or something like that mm-hmm. can help kind of uh, get, reduce some of that heat. And then radiation occurs when heat from the body dissipates into the environment that's like just your normal body heat daily like mm-hmm. with those infrared cameras you can see the the heat dissipating off of you radiating yeah. off of you technically mm. i know these Big are words. science words <laughs> i know so <sighs> things to avoid when trying to cool a patient right we want to try to cool them as naturally as possible I know it's so crazy to think of like the things to avoid because the things to avoid were the things that were taught to me to do when I was in tech school 20 years ago. Um, And I definitely did this stuff because I worked in a GP and we saw, unfortunately, we saw a ton of heat strokes come in. So it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, these are, these are things we shouldn't be doing and we did them all the time. And, and one of those is, is using ice um, on our patients. So we used to use ice packs and it's actually not recommended anymore because unfortunately what happens is it causes peripheral vasoconstriction. So instead of the blood coming to the surface and cooling, we actually are keeping that warm, hot blood in the central system, um, and just keeping the patient warm actually. So we, we don't want to use ice because it actually, makes things worse not only that but like you know ice can damage the skin and make treatment uncomfortable for that patient so ice is no longer recommended because of that yeah ice is like like you said it was one of those things that i was taught to just cool down as fast as possible so Mm -hmm. we often use those like those ice pads and things like that Mm -hmm. the other thing that we did um and i remember learning about this actually at an emergency conference was to do gastric lavage with cold water or um, cold water enemas. And and the idea was, right, you get the cold thing into the center of the system, center of the body to help cool things off. But actually um, it can cause, you, you're at a higher risk of like aspiration from the water, right? If you're doing gastric lavage. And then the cold water enemas, because we've already got a GI tract that's permeability, permeability. (laughs) (laughs) it can actually cause more problems. So they, they just said, don't do it. It actually, it, it, the risks associated with it just outweigh the potential benefits. Yeah. And then 
it also says to try to avoid shivering in a patient, which is difficult, right? Like, well, and I think that's one of those, like, if you cool them off too quickly. Yeah. Because I've definitely seen this where they'll take the patient and, like, put them, they'll, like, submerge them in water and get them soaked. And mm-hmm. it's, like, and then they've got the fans on them and it's, like, mm-hmm. it cools them down too quickly. Yeah. And then, you know, we get to a... a you also don't want to drop them below a certain point because now then we're talking about hypothermia mm-hmm. and then that causes problems. So it's, it's, it's well, really important to monitor very closely <laughs> during any active cooling to yeah. make sure we don't get too cold. And then, well, and then kind of circling back to the shivering part is like the body's response is to shiver when it gets too cold. Mm-hmm. to try to bring that temperature back up so like we don't want that imbalance we want to slowly draw the temperature down and typically we'll stop cooling just before it gets back into the normal range and yeah. try to let the body cool itself back into normal mm-hmm. um we don't want to cool them down to 100 degrees and then the body keep going <laughs> yeah the body's the other- unbalanced right like it's it's just not yeah, yeah, the other the other thing, and and I don't think you had it in your notes, but um, I was also taught at one point to do alcohol on the pads. Yeah, and they actually don't recommend that because, um, one, it can cause vasoconstriction, but mm-hmm. two, um, they can depending on how much alcohol you use, they can actually absorb some of the alcohol, mm-hmm. and then it becomes an issue. So just water on pads is fine. Yeah. Um, and just using just kind of cool slash lukewarm water, um, and then using the fans to to help cool them off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it is ideal to try to reach body temperature between like one hundred three and one hundred four. And then discontinue active cooling in order to avoid that like rebound hypothermia. Because again, the body is going to still like the body is still in the mode of trying to fix that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it will continue to cool from there. So when we're speak, because a lot of these clients will call when they're on the way, right? So what we want to try to do is try to have the owners begin cooling the dog on like during the travel to the hospital, just because again, the sooner mm-hmm. we can uh, start cooling a patient and cool off those organs, then the better outcome we're likely to have. Mm. So those pets that are, that begin active cooling on the way to the hospital versus waiting until they get to the hospital tend to have a bad, better outcome mm. than those pets that aren't cooled. And the percentage is actually pretty high. <laughs> I know. I was like, holy crap. Yeah. So with with active cooling prior to getting to the hospital, it was like a 19% mortality rate versus no active cooling. It was a 49%. So it's like a 30% different. That's huge. That's mm-hmm. huge. And this is like, it doesn't have to be crazy for the owners, right? Like they could put like water on their pet and mm-hmm. then just use like the the air conditioning in their car or even just like open windows in the car just having that that you circulation know, ventilation and mm-hmm. circulation of air to help kind of inc- increase your um evaporation of of heat so yeah um, it doesn't ha- again d- don't use ice tell them not to use ice <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know offering them water to drink if they want to drink it 
making sure we have some fans on them, you know, maybe put their paw pads in water, that kind of thing to just kind of help cool them off. Once they get to the hospital, some patients do require some respiratory help. So we Mm. we do want to make sure that the airway is evaluated just to make sure that there's not too much inflammation. Uh, Some patients are, especially our brachycephalic breathe. (laughs) Some patients do require intubation. Some even require a tracheostomy. Mm. So we want our patients too. Yeah, exactly. Any of those patients that are previously respiratory compromised, Mm -hmm. like collapsing trachea and things like that, we are going to probably want to go ahead and intubate and provide supplemental oxygen. Even those patients that aren't intubated, we want to provide flow by oxygen just because again, they're not oxygenating well on their own. Mm -hmm. And then we want to be cautious though, with the use of oxygen cages, because as we know, the, the humidity increases pretty rapidly in there, especially when you throw a hot patient into the cage and they're panting and they're trying to pull those cages get warm fast. So you can actually exacerbate the hyperthermia. Yeah. Some of the newer ones are better at it, but you just Mm -hmm. want to keep a very close eye on the temperature in there and the humidity, which Mm -hmm. at most the common one, well, I'll say the Snyder brand is really good about keeping an eye on that. Um, But if you don't have one that, that can temperature control or humidity control just be really careful with these patients well and like even if you do have one that temperature controls so you have to remember though too these patients are like expelling a lot of heat from their body in general Mm -hmm. so like the machines can only work so hard to keep it cool in there uh establishing an iv catheter access is imperative in these patients and just trying to get iv fluids started as quickly as possible with room temperature IV fluids too, and typically crystalloids. Yeah, don't because... use the refrigerator stuff because that was no. at one point a thing. Don't mm-hmm. do that. Just room yep. temperature. But crystalloids can be given as a bolus too, just to try to help that hypovolemia and hemoconcentration. And then again, just IV fluids in general are really going to help provide cardiovascular support and going to help with the electrolyte imbalance and things like that. And then as well as work towards cooling the patient as well. Because again, room temperature is, you know, typically depending on if you work with people like me in the seventies, if you work with crazy people who work in the sixties, it can vary. (laughs) Um, So we don't want to go much cooler than that. And then if crystalloids though, aren't maintaining intravascular volume pretty well, then we can consider administering colloids, uh, especially want to consider it too if patients are hypoalbuminemic because again we do have some protein damage when we mm. when we go along there so fresh frozen plasma also is recommended again if we have prolonged pts and aptts it gets more and more and more expensive for clients the more we talk <laughs> about it this is not a cheap fix at yeah. all it really isn't because then Like it's not just cooling the patient, right? Like we know that there's going to be a high risk of bacterial translocation just due to the GI damage and the GI permeability. So broad spectrum antibiotics should be started while we want to keep in mind of antibiotic resistance as well. So we don't necessarily want to start antibiotics if a patient isn't showing GI signs, but if they do show GI signs, then definitely those patients need antibiotics. Uh, we want to do GI support as well. So uh, anti-emetics to help prevent nausea and then um, mm, GI, GI protectants because of GI ulceration. So we really want to make sure that we try to do everything we can to support 
the GI tract as well. So it is a lot of medications. It's a lot of intensive care. These are definitely ICU yeah. patients. Yeah. Um, we want to do some CNS support as well uh, because some patients can have increased intracranial pressure. So we can do things like mannitol. I don't want to get into the details of mannitol Ooh. because it's not yeah. something I've used a ton. Hypertonic saline is also a possibility. I don't think that's used as much anymore though. Um, I don't work in neuro, so I guess I don't know how often it's used. <laughs> I mean, I see both of them in like our ER department, so I'm not sure. The problem is, is like with both of them, like if your patient's dehydrated, then it doesn't, it's not recommended because yeah. we're dehydrating further. So it's, it's one of those, like you have to make sure that they're, they're, we're keeping up with their hydration status despite ongoing losses, right? Cause we've got diarrhea going on and everything. Mm-hmm. So as long as we can get them to like a, you know, normal tension, then we can do, or yeah. not normal tension, excuse me, um, normal hydration, then we can potentially do mannitol or hypertonic saline, but it's, I mean, it's one of those things, like we have to be very careful. Like we, we have to protect the CNS as much as possible, but mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to cause further damage. So it's, it's a balance. Yay. Well, and leading into nursing too, if we have patients that might have suspected cerebral edema, we want to do things to help reduce the effects of that. So mm. things, my, minor things too, just like elevation of the head and avoiding compression of the jugular veins. Yeah. So that that's where like, if a central line is placed, especially using a jugular vein, we want to be very cautious with our wraps, jugular mm-hmm. veins and central lines are very much contraindicated if we have coagulopathies. <laughs> yeah. I was like, so, <laughs> just avoid uh, the jugular veins. Just don't touch them. If you have a heat stroke patient in general, maybe, never mind. I'll just make that my tip of the week. Uh, <laughs> cardiovascular support needs to happen too. And, and just monitoring because these patients can have ventricular arrhythmias mm-hmm. uh, and then um, damage to the myocardium. So kind of treating these patients with lidocaine can help with the arrhythmias and then just monitoring the heart long-term oh. too, to make sure there's no long-term effects. So... <sighs> baseline monitoring that needs to occur pretty frequently in these guys is going to include heart rate, respiratory rate, temperature, mucous membrane color, and capillary refill time, blood pressure, ECG, and pulse ox typically. And then throughout the hospitalization stay, we're going to really want to keep a close eye on their neurologic status. We're going to want to keep a close eye on those PT and APTT numbers, pack cell volume and total protein, glucose and electrolytes, and then, of course, our acid-based balance in our patients. And urine output's big, too, because these mm. guys are trying to compensate long-term. And because we run the risk of renal damage, too, these guys can become oliguric. And that's not good. No. Ugh. It's just bad all around in general. Yeah. Like, it's a lot of monitoring, and it's not outpatient care. There's no such thing as outpatient care when it comes to heat stroke. No. And it, and it, obviously the higher the temperature, the more damage there is. So it's, that's another reason why it's really important to get a, a temperature when they first get there. Um, if the clients can get a temperature like on their way, obviously that's, that's great. I mean, don't make them stop and get a thermometer, but like if they have like their pet thermometer at home, like they should hopefully at least take a temperature um, so they can do their active cooling as well. Um, and yeah, it's, yeah. 
I think client communication for these patients, one of the biggest parts is going to be just talking about like the hospitalization, how intensive it is, really making sure that they understand that this could be very expensive. And even with it being very expensive, there's no guarantee that their pet's going to like make it like, it just depends on how much damage, um, and whether or not, you know, it was caught early enough. Cause again, you know, when we talked about the mortality rates, it's, you know, 40% mortality rate is pretty high. Like that's, that's significant. So, you know, again, <laughs> client communication. Yeah. And prevention is going to be key too, right? Mm -hmm. Like we yeah. want these patients to make sure that they have adequate shade and drinking water outside, exercise only during cooler parts of the day. Never want to leave dogs alone in closed vehicles. I'm not going to start on a soapbox on that one. That goes for babies too. Um, that's it. That's <laughs> yeah. all I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> we want to acclimate dogs to warm temperatures for up to two months. So don't just like, just gradually increase your time outside. If you, if they have to be outside during warm, mm. warm times, Especially then, if you move, like if you move from a cooler region to a hotter region, like don't expect them to be doing what they normally would do. It's just not, it's not good. Um, if they have like upper airway obstruction, so like brachycephalic disease, laryngeal paralysis, anything like that, you know, talk to them and ab about surgical um, fixing of that, of that thing to help prevent, you know, the, the increased effort that, that potentially happens. And, and really, like, I usually tell clients, like, if your, if your pet has had heat stroke before, they're going to be at a higher risk of it just because they've already had it. You know, they, 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 they have. So just, you know, be really cautious and keep an eye on them in the future. Uh, cautions. I will say caution of the week um, or, or cautions we should talk about. I definitely think just the act of cooling and understanding mm -hmm. that that is different than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, don't use ice. Don't. There's a lot of good resources out there now too, yeah. to like kind of yeah. read up on it a little bit. Yeah. So, but 100%. yeah, definitely, definitely be cautious when it comes to active cooling. We want to do slow and steady. Yes. Slow and steady wins the race. <laughs> it's the tip of the week. My tip of the week is if you suspect a heat stroke dog, please don't poke the neck. Ooh, uh, please yeah. use small veins. So if we can do, we want to save catheter legs, right? But we want to use the smaller veins. If we can use pedals, great. If not, then lateral saphenous, medial saphenous, not femoral, um, not jug, things like that. Yeah. Just remember these guys are, they have, they're going to have coagulopathies. <laughs> and they're going to bruise a ton yeah. and they're going to bleed yeah. a lot. They're going to ooze. Yeah. I would say the second tip of the week to kind of go along with that. It's, so that's your like in hospital tip. I'm going to say outside the hospital. If a client suspects heat stroke, just have them start actively cooling on the way. Um, because again, that, that is a huge difference as far as mortality rate. Um, so, you know, give them a leg up and have them do active cooling. Yeah. Without ice. <laughs> Without ice or alcohol. Right. Just water and a fan, guys. <laughs> and now for the question of the week. What are some people's excuses for why their pets present like heat stroke, but aren't heat stroke? You know what I mean? Like where clients are like, there's no way this is heat stroke. I think it's this. Like, no, oh, I don't know that. Oh, 
That's what I, it, it's probably going to come from an ER tech. I have, I bet someone <laughs> has a story. Well, and like, I think, I think too, like one, another question, like if you don't have a cool story, I would say, um, what's an unusual heat stroke that you've dealt with? Mm. And I, and what I mean by that is like, we all know dogs locked in cars. Like that's, that's like a give me, right? <laughs> but like, did you have like, husky going for a run with their owner (laughs) i've seen that in georgia i I was like i was like who on their in their right mind who in their right mind is like let me go jogging with my two huskies in august in south carolina right you know it's funny like to kind of go along with that husky thing um where people used to do shave downs for all fluffy animals during the summer and that's not a thing now because they figured out that actually makes them retain heat Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, bodies are <laughs> amazing. They've developed processes to keep themselves cool. <laughs> Evolution's don't, don't crazy. Mess with that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, that's a good point. But all right, well, that's all I got on heat stroke. Um definitely I would say look at like the emergency and critical care stuff because a hundred percent they're dealing with heat strokes more than yeah, than we are. Absolutely. Um absolutely. And uh, I've definitely seen my fair share. I've seen some, seen some bad ones. Um, yeah. And I've seen some that do great. Like, you know, it took them a while, but they were able to get out of the hospital. So, yeah, absolutely. So, all right, guys, I hope everybody learned something this week. I know I did. Um, <laughs> that's all I got for you. And then I hope everybody has a good week. Keep getting your learn on and we will chat with you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.